morning, everyone. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, can I just say a big thank you to all those who came yesterday to give out uh, cream eggs and invitations to our Good Friday services. Uh, there, I think we gave out just under 500 cream eggs and 500 invitations. There are some of the invitations at the back if you'd like to take those this morning and invite some people along either on Friday morning or on Friday evening. Let me ask you a, a question. Do you have an Achilles heel, spiritually speaking? An Achilles heel is a weak spot. It's an area of vulnerability. It's a seemingly small, but actually a crucial weakness. Well, in Genesis 20, we discover that Abraham had won. Let me just ask you another couple of questions as you're turning to Genesis 20. First question is this, do we ever really learn from our mistakes? Do we? And secondly, are there particular mistakes that we keep making, that keep tripping us up? Well, last week in our journey into the unknown, we looked at Genesis 19, one of the most disturbing and distressing chapters in the entire Bible, but the central character of Genesis 19 was Abraham's nephew, Lot. This morning, we're back with Abraham, but alongside him, a brand new character walks onto the stage of this story. And he becomes a key player in this chapter. He's a king. He's a foreign king. He's a Philistine king. He's a non-Israelite. And therefore, he can't be good. Or at the very least... He's someone who should be treated with a certain amount of suspicion. Or at least, that was certainly Abraham's perspective. Or maybe it's more accurate to say that was Abraham's judgment. And it's interesting how we sometimes make very quick and rash judgments about people before we get to know them. I don't know if you ever do that. And because they're not like us, or because they're not one of us, we assume they have little or no time for our God. In chapter 19, we, uh, we left Abraham staring down towards Sodom and Gomorrah as he saw the dense smoke rise following the downpour of burning sulfur. But as we come into chapter 20, Abraham's on the move again. The journey continues now let's read Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. It's page 20 in the Pew Bibles. If you do have a copy of the, of the Bible with you, it would be really handy to follow because we're, we're going to follow the story through this morning. I'm not going to read it in one chunk as we did last week. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev, and he lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, now, why Abraham shifted location is unknown. But it's generally thought that it related to the needs of his livestock. Verse 2. And there Abraham said to his wife Sarah, said of his wife Sarah, sorry, she is my sister. Now, for most of us that should sound familiar. Have we not been here before? Has Abraham not tried this one? Has he not made this mistake on a previous occasion? And it nearly cost him and Sarah 
everything. Is this Abraham's Achilles heel? For those who have been following Abraham's journey with us, there should be a definite sense of deja vu here. If you have a Bible open, flick back to chapter 12 and look at verses 12 and 13. This time the setting is not Gerar, the setting is Egypt. And this is what Abraham says to Sarah. When the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Now Abraham here in chapter 20 is in a different place, but his behavior is shockingly similar. He can't seem to stop himself from bending the truth whenever it suits him. He senses that he's under pressure, and so his weak spot, his Achilles heel, gets exposed. He's scared. He's scared as he was in Egypt that his beautiful wife is going to catch somebody's eye in Gerar, and he'll be taken out of the picture in order to make her, Sarah, accessible. And so he lies. Again, you see, if lying, or at best, if twisting the truth slightly is going to save your skin, then so be it. Do you ever do that? Backs up against the wall, pressure's on, fear sets in, and you just need to twist the truth a little to get out of this. Now, it's not that Abraham is a naturally fearful person. His fearless approach to life on other occasions and at other times is incredibly impressive. He wasn't afraid to pack up and head off into this journey onto the unknown from her, even though he had very little idea what lay ahead of him. He wasn't afraid to chase after and fight four kings who had captured Lot in chapter 14. And he was even bold enough to challenge God during his prayer of intercession at the end of chapter 18. As he appeared to bargain with God in an attempt to avoid Sodom's destruction. That took guts. That took a brass neck. Abraham wasn't a naturally fearful person. But when it came to this situation, fear sets in and his Achilles heel is once again uncovered. As Stuart Briscoe says, it should not be forgotten that when fear comes in the door, rational thought, spiritual insight and moral integrity are sometimes all too anxious to beat a hasty retreat. How true is that? Sometimes, as Christians, we, we do and we say things that in terms of our faith actually make little or no sense. In certain situations, whenever the pressure's on, or fear sets in, our values and our principles sometimes go out the window. The guard comes down. The temptation to compromise is intense. And so even though I know what the right thing to do is, I don't do it. And even like Abraham, what's particularly shocking is we've been here before. What is your Achilles heel? Is there a particular thing you do? An attitude you hold, a pattern of behavior, a way of thinking that keeps tripping you up. 
an area of weakness that you need to be careful about. You need to pray into specifically. You need to address it. You need to ask help with it. What is my Achilles heel? I've got to be honest here. But in terms of a specific situation where I often mess up, where I keep saying things, doing things that I know are not right, it's in the context of a football match on a Saturday afternoon. It's not every week. It's not every time. But so often, despite what I know, despite the fact that I have been here so many times, I still find myself voicing off at the ref, getting even, and generally acting and reacting in a manner that contradicts rather than complements my faith. That certainly feeds like my Achilles heel, or one of them. But some would say that that's sport, that's football, that's just what happens in the context of a competitive match or game. No, that's an excuse, that's a cop-out. I'm responsible for my actions and reactions, my thoughts and my attitudes in every aspect of life. I can't just select the ones. Will I ever learn from my mistakes? I hope I am learning. One of the people uh, in my life who acts as a kind of spiritual advisor often asks this question. David, what are you and God working on at the moment? It's a great question in terms of spiritual formation. Let me ask you that this morning. What are you and God working on at the moment? For me, my Achilles heel constantly feels like a project I'm working on with God. There. They say confession's good for the soul. I feel much better. <laughs> but just back to our text, back to our story. Abraham has been here before. And despite all that he knows, he's back doing exactly the same thing again. He's wrestling with recurring sin. Let's read on verse 2. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Now Gerar is a, a royal city and the king who is our new character in Abraham's story, Abimelech, he's attracted by Sarah's beauty and so because Sarah isn't married, he takes her. Now we need to stop there because we need to in some way attempt to get our heads around the massive implications of Abraham and Sarah's deceit. Because clearly they haven't thought this through. If Abimelech really does take Sarah, and if Sarah becomes a part of and disappears into this Philistine family network, which absolutely could have happened, where does that leave the promises of God regarding a son for Abraham and Sarah? And where does that leave the promises of God for everything else that flows out of that son for Sarah and Abraham. As a result of this choice to deceive and to lie, they were playing fast and loose with the promises of God. They hadn't considered the potential consequences of their actions. And the thing is, we seldom do when the heat is on. We seldom do whenever we feel under pressure seriously step back and think about the consequences of our action. When the pressure is on, 
We often neglect the promises of God, the reality of God, and the impact that some of these choices are going to make on my immediate and long-term future. As one commentator has said, spiritual amnesia is dangerous when it allows an Abraham to forget about the promises of God. Knowing and remembering the promises of God are essential requirements in Christian discipleship. And therefore they have got to impact and influence our day-to-day lives. Abraham and Sarah seem to have forgotten who they were. They seem to have certainly forgotten who God was. And they absolutely have forgotten what God has said. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night. And he said to him, you're as good as dead. Because of the woman you have taken. She's a married woman. Now it's interesting to note that Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaks and engages with a foreigner. See, the people of God don't have a monopoly on revelation from God. Who God speaks to and how he communicates is often fascinating and surprising. But what God says to this king isn't exactly comforting. You're a dead man because of what you've done. But hang on a minute. How was Abimelech meant to know that Sarah was married? Well, as it turns out, according to verse 4, Abimelech hasn't actually taken Sarah. And so he pleads the justice of God when he asks this question. Look at verse 4. I'm reading from the ESV. Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Now, the very fact that this Philistine king addresses Yahweh as Lord is interesting. And his question is perfectly understandable. And so he goes on, verse 5. Did Abraham not say himself to me, she's my sister? And did Sarah herself not say, he is my brother? So Abraham and Sarah were in this cover-up together. And Abimelech makes that point. He makes the fair point that they have deceived me. He's done nothing wrong. At least he's done nothing knowingly wrong. And then we come to what I think is an amazing, memorable, and challenging comment from Abimelech. Look at verse 5. Again, I'm reading from ESV. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done that. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Surely, that's an admirable and compelling desire of everything true child of God. That in all we think, in everything we say, in all we do, that we have a right heart and clean hands. Integrity of heart, innocence of hands. Let let me just pick up on the first of those. Whenever uh, Solomon finished building the temple, God spoke into his life. And God actually said lots to that king. But here's one of his key instructions. Walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart as your father David did. We know David made many mistakes, but we also know that he had a heart after God. And integrity of heart doesn't mean you always get it right, but it does mean that you recognize its importance and you pursue it passionately. David in Psalm 25 prayed this, and this is my prayer. May integrity of heart and uprightness protect me. 
my integrity apart and uprightness protect me. Someone has said that the key to your growth, the key to your fruitfulness and your fulfillment in life as a human being is integrity apart. Integrity means that what we believe and then how we behave connects. There's no gap. There's no contradiction. I think it's really interesting here how a man of the world, Abimelech, seems to have more integrity than a man of faith, Abraham. Ever come across that? Non-Christians who live more morally upright lives than some Christians. Integrity means doing the right thing even though no one's watching. For a biblical definition of integrity, let me go back to Genesis 17. God says to Abraham, here's what I require of you. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. That for me is a call to integrity. Let me just give you two quotes to take away and reflect on. Have the courage to say no. The courage to face the truth. And the courage to do the right thing because it is right. These are the magic keys of living your life with integrity. One of the truest tests of integrity is its blunt refusal to be compromised. Man, you see, looks in the outward appearance. God looks in the heart. And therefore, as we rejoin the story in verse 6, we see that God does see beyond the exterior of this king. Verse 6 says, yes, I know, Abimelech, that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch Sarah. You see, in response to an integrity of heart, God protects Abimelech from doing the wrong thing. God protects Abimelech from committing a sin. And how desperately do I need that? God sees the desire in this man's heart and he steps in to save him from himself. And I often wonder how many times has God stepped into my life and saved me from myself? Many times has God stopped me from going too far? Stopped me before I have gone in too deep? There but for the grace of God though so many of us God then tells Abimelech that he's got to put things right. In verse 7 he says to him, listen, you've got to give Sarah back to Abraham. And here God identifies Abraham as a prophet. Now that's grace. That is grace. That despite Abraham's Achilles heel, despite his poor choices, despite his lack of integrity, God is still intent on using him to achieve his purposes. That's grace. And God then tells Abimelech that if you obey, then you'll live. But there's a word of warning here. There's a condition attached to this. Look at the second half of verse 7. But if you do not return, Sarah, know that you will surely die. You and all who are yours. You see, whenever it comes to dealing with God, the consequences of obedience are serious. Later on, we know the wages of sin is death. Keep doing the wrong thing and payday will inevitably come. 
The ball's now very much in Abimelech's court. What's he going to do? The dream ends. The conversation with God is over. And so early the next morning, Abimelech gathers his servants and he shares his dream. And understandably, his servants are, if you look at verse 8, the men were very much afraid. And then Abimelech summons Abraham. And he asks him the same question that the Egyptian pharaoh asked Abraham back in chapter 12. What have you done to us? Abraham, why have you done this to us? He continues, how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done things to me, Abraham, that ought not to have been done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? In other words, Abraham, what were you thinking? You ever ask yourself that? When, when you've done something, what's got into your head? Did you ever ask that of someone else? I know we've talked about this before. But somebody else close to you walked well and done something. You say, what were you thinking when you made that choice? And now it's time for excuses. It's an attempt at justification. And again, the the relevance of God's word is incredible. This is why I love the Bible. Because, you see, whenever I mess up, there seems to be this automatic default reaction to excuse or justify my behavior. Like, it was the heat of the moment. God, he kicked me. He deserved it. I'm only human. And Abraham's excuse here is brilliant, if excuses ever are. Now remember, one of the key reasons that he lied in the first place was because of fear. But look at what he says in verse 11. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. So rather than take responsibility for his own actions, he tries to excuse himself by blaming others. These godless Philistines made me do it. That's a familiar excuse, isn't it? Pointing the finger at others rather than confronting our own sin. Jesus years later would confront a very similar mindset when he said this. How can you say to someone, let me remove the speck from your eye whenever there's a plank in your own eye? And surely what we discover here is that actually it's Abraham who doesn't fear God. And so he was prepared to do whatever it took, despite all he knew, to save his own skin. Question. Oh, that wasn't meant to happen. But in behind that is a text (laughs) that says this. Fear of man or fear of God, which is more evident in my life? And which has more influence on the choices I make? Who are we more afraid of? In the right sense. Am I more afraid of people and what they think of me and what they will say about me, about my reputation? Or do I actually hold a healthy fear of God and it's that that dictates the choices that I make? Abraham goes on in verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister. The daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. 
and she is my wife. Now we actually discover here that Sarah is, in fact, truly Abraham's sister. Well, actually, half-sister. But we also discover that she's also his wife. So he admits, if nothing else, that he was economical with the truth. It's not exactly the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And then finally, in verse 13, it even seems that Abraham is prepared to point the finger at God. This is interesting. And when God, he says, caused me to wander from my father's house. Now surely God called Abraham as opposed to forced him. I'm pretty sure none of us would would ever reach a place, and I'm sure nobody does, of saying, God made me do that. Or at least made me do something unless it was 100% right. But I reckon we've all heard people come off with the classic, the devil made me do it. But in light of all that, in light of Abraham trying to justify his behavior, make excuses. The amazing grace of God overrules. And this is where I want to get to this morning. And this is where I want to finish up. And that's why this morning we've been thinking about and singing about the grace of God. Because the grace of God overrules here. Now let's read to the end, right from verse 14. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves, and he gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land before you is yours. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls, so that they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. You see, despite Abraham's Achilles heel, despite his less than honouring behaviour, he ends up with more livestock, more silver, more slaves. His wife is restored to him, plus he gets to pray for Abimelech. Not only does he get to pray for Abimelech, but God hears his prayer and he heals Abimelech, he heals his wife, and he heals all Abimelech's female servants. Abraham The man who nearly brought death to Abimelech by his scheming is still the means by which God gives life and blessing to Abimelech. In spite of Abraham's lack of faith, we see God doesn't reject him. Abraham might have let go of God, but God in his grace never let go of Abraham. As Walter Rubeman comments, The text makes the claim that Abraham is the chosen of God, not by words which are lacking, and they were lacking, nor even by faith which is feeble here, and it is, but only by God's incredible grace. And at times, just like Abraham, we do mess up. We even repeat our mistakes. And then... We try to justify and excuse what we have done. And yet God can and God still use us to impact the lives of others. That's grace. We fail, but failure, as we're discovering in this journey, is never final. Because we have a father who doesn't give up on his kids. 
a Father who sticks by us and sticks with us, constantly offering us hope in the future. In short, we have a God of grace. Amazing one. And Genesis 20, for me, proves it, illustrates it. And what I discover time and time again is that the grace of God is written bold and large in virtually every page of Scripture. Just some questions if you want to take away and reflect them. What is your Achilles heel? Have you ever faced a situation where rational thought, spiritual insight and moral integrity have gone out the window? If yes, what will you do now? What promises of God are you in danger of forgetting? Why is integrity of heart and innocence of hand so important and how do we pursue those? Fear of man or fear of God, which is more evident in your life and which has more influence on the choices you make and why? And then identify the examples of God's grace in this chapter. I haven't highlighted them all. There are other examples of God's grace in that chapter. But identify them and then give thanks for the grace of God in your life.